Good morning, C4. Oh, no, 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 no. Good morning, C4. There we go. There we go. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you. I want to say good morning to everyone over in Venue B. I want to say hi to everyone watching in Canada and the States, around the world. For our American audience, I say this every year, we celebrate Thanksgiving properly today. We're so sorry for you. Let's, I just want to say that. And uh, we do it because we get to start Christmas shopping sooner. So I think it's fantastic. But we want to say happy Thanksgiving to all of you, and uh, hopefully you have not had too much turkey and you will not fall asleep while I preach uh, today. If you've got a Bible this morning on your device or paper, we'd love you to turn to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. We're in this brand new series. Actually, it's the main series for our ministry year out of the Sermon on the Mount. If you don't know the scriptures and you're most welcome, many people come here who are checking out faith, wondering about faith, and may not have a lot of background. This is the most famous part of Jesus' teaching, and it's found in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. Now, as I begin to preach this morning, let me remind all of us here, everyone online, everyone in Venue B, of this significant thing. The reason why Jesus came was to do one thing. His message, his mission, his mandate, the reason why Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, came into the world is to do one thing. He was bringing the kingdom of God, or what Matthew calls the kingdom of heaven. And as I've been teaching you week after week, when you read that phrase, and as our theme is kingdom come this whole year, let us not make the mistake of misunderstanding what the kingdom is. The kingdom is not a place yet. The kingdom of God is not the nation of Israel that you can fly to today. The kingdom of God is not this church or any other church around the world. The kingdom of God is not found in geography. See, the kingdom of God is any place or space where the reign and rule of God is welcomed, embraced, and accepted. And the way you do that is by meeting Jesus. See, if you're a Christian here this morning, you're a member of the kingdom. You are not the kingdom, but you are a member of the kingdom because you have welcomed and proclaimed Jesus as Savior and also King. Now, as we've been learning over the last three or four years, this is getting clearer and clearer. See, if spiritual gifts are the guaranteed place of power for the kingdom to burst out and grow, and spiritual disciplines, which we spent our summer studying, are the guaranteed place of transformation as we walk with the king of the kingdom, then the Sermon on the Mount is what the kingdom will look like worked out in your everyday, ordinary life. The Sermon on the Mount is the ethics, it's the lifestyle of those that are already members of the kingdom of God. See, so many people read the Sermon on the Mount and are so excited by it, but they divorce it from the one who is giving it. The reason why the Sermon on the Mount has authority beyond it being brilliant or moral is because the one who is giving it has authority to speak into every human being's life. It was Dallas Willard who called basically the Sermon on the Mount God's based inversion. It was Thomas Wright that pointed out that Jesus in this place takes us like through the sound barrier where things begin to work backwards. 
So if you want to see the kingdom of God come in C4, if you want the kingdom of God to grow significantly more and more, you, your family, this region, in unexpected and expected places, if you want to know what the kingdom feels like and it smells like and you want to know what it truly looks like to see the kingdom of God in your everyday life, we as a community must commit to know the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' manifesto for the church. Now, like I said last week, when Jesus started preaching this, he was not imagining a different world that was impossible. This is not not escapist. This This is not fantasy. This is not utopian. What we're talking about is the grand reversal of the status quo that has existed since the fall, and God has come into humanity. He is breaking in what will be permanent in the future, that is the new heavens and the new earth, into the now. The Sermon on the Mount is the greatest foretaste of what will be permanent later. Our church cry these days is, Oh God, bring your kingdom and nothing less. And the reason why we say this with authority and hope and expectation and growing anticipation is because Jesus proclaims the kingdom is real, doable, possible, and the Sermon on the Mount is expected for every person who claims Christ. Now let me begin where I started last week. So you've got your Bible. Just turn to Matthew 5, verse 1. If you don't got a Bible, it's going to be right on the screens here. This is how the Sermon on the Mount began. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside. And he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Now we learned that Matthew was writing predominantly to a Jewish audience that had said yes to Jesus as Messiah. And one of the great parallels that Matthew is drawing here to the Old Testament mind is Moses. Moses went up on the mountain at least five times, and he met with God. He lived in his presence for a period. He, he walked with God in one way, did not see his face fully, but met with him. And then it says that he descended down the mountain. And when he descended down the mountain, he met the people of God, and he told them who God truly was, and then also gave them his written word. But that was not deeply permanent. This that is taking place is permanent. Moses is a foreshadow for what's taking place at this moment. But there's something I didn't mention last week that I need to. Now, I did mention that the amazing thing is that Jesus was actually the God that Moses was meeting with. But the thing I didn't mention last week that a person in our congregation reminded me of, which is so helpful, insightful, is this. He said, do you remember that on all the encounters between God and Moses... The people weren't allowed up the mountain. The people actually, there were barriers put around the mountain of God. And it was said by God, if you touch the mountain, you will die. The leadership under Moses and with Moses was allowed somewhat up the mountain. Joshua even a little bit more. But no one was allowed to enter the very presence of God except Moses. But do you see what's happening here? The disciples and the crowds get to walk up and sit on the mountain and see God face to face and not die anymore. See, this is the profound truth of Christianity, that Jesus, who is God in flesh, loves us so much that he has been sent so we can know who God is, we don't need to fear God anymore, and we can encounter him in all of his glory. Isn't that an amazing truth? That is the beautiful thing of our faith. So last week, Jesus comes and he begins to reveal as the new greater Moses who God is because he is God. And he begins to outline what it looks like when someone enters into the kingdom of God and then after you enter in, actually what you'll look like over time. He started by saying in verse 3, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. 
for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And then he said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And, and we learned that Jesus was not saying, blessed are those who are poor economically. Or blessed are those who are under great hardship, though there are many scriptures that talk that way. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. See, this is how you enter the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who admit they're bankrupt spiritually before God. Blessed are those who admit they're a sinner before the holy, true, living God. Blessed are those who bend the knee and just admit they need a Savior, they're full of sin, they can't escape death, and they need someone to come save them. No to self-reliance, no to running your own life, and yes to someone coming and intervening. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. They and they only meet the reign and rule of God. And the only way you bend a knee is through Jesus. This is blessed are those who mourn. This is the emotive side of being poor in spirit. Blessed are those who don't just think, yeah, I'm a sinner. No, no. There is a motive crisis. There is a moment of repentance where you say, oh, woe is me. Woe is me. How I need forgiveness. How dirty I have been in my mind, in my heart, in my life. Though there is good in me, there is so much darkness. Oh, how I need help. See, Jesus says that's how you enter the kingdom of God. There is no other way. Religion doesn't get you there. Morals doesn't get you there. Being good doesn't get you there. Nothing gets. This is the only door into the kingdom. And then Jesus says after this has taken place in your life, this is what will happen to you. You will begin more and more to actually look like the one you've met. The vertical encounter that you have will begin to spill over horizontally. And he says you'll suddenly be meek. You'll suddenly start hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You'll want things you used to hate. You'll suddenly start having mercy on people. You'll be concerned about purity in heart. You'll want to be a peacemaker. And you'll be persecuted. You'll be mocked for standing up for Christ. See, in those first 12 verses, we found out that this is Jesus' own definition of what it looks like to enter the kingdom of God and what every single Christian over a lifetime ought to look like. This is what the kingdom of God feels like, smells like, what it is when it's planted within you. See, we as a church are asking, oh God, may your kingdom come more and more and more. And what we're asking for is God to make us mournful, God to comfort us, God to make us meek, peacemakers. We're asking God to make us a pure people and violate anything that's against his law. Do you know what you're asking for? He says, this is how you enter But Jesus knew us and knows us so well. He knew that we would be tempted to do one thing very quickly. It's a very Canadian attribute, actually. He knew that we would be tempted just to make this a personal thing, a private thing. It's a me and Jesus thing. This doesn't have to affect the rest of my life. That's fine. I'll accept the reign and rule of God, and we'll just, you know, we'll have our moments and we'll walk. And he says, no, no. The kingdom, when it shows up for real, will be worked out in your family. When the kingdom shows up for real, it will be worked out at work, in relationships. It's not just in here. No, no, it must spill out over there. See, faith and Jesus and the kingdom are never a private thing. And that is why at this moment, Jesus, at this critical moment, right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, chooses to use two of the most common, known metaphors of his own culture, salt and light. Jesus would have seen this his whole life. These were the domestic tools of his day. He would have seen his mom use salt every single day in her cooking. Every single day at night as the sun went down, they would light lamps in their homes. 
this was, this was normal. When he said this, everyone sort of understood it. Like I've said before, in 150 years from now, it'd be like, blessed are those who use Facebook. Everyone's like, well, what's Facebook? Well, we would understand and they wouldn't. This is unbelievably common here. See, what Jesus is about to reveal is that the kingdom has come, and the kingdom, if it's really among a church, if it's really in a family, if it's really in you, it will burst out into public witness. See, those who are poor in spirit, those who have mourned over their sin, those who are growing in meekness, those hungering for righteousness, those who are becoming merciful, those who are concerned about purity, those who are being attacked for genuinely following Jesus, this will never happen in isolation. All of this, he's saying, must be worked out, practiced in, journeyed through in a dark, sinful, hostile, confused world. And what's so amazing in the few verses we're going to read this morning together, what's shocking is Jesus' deep confidence. His powerful knowing that all of what he's about to say would happen. As we read these verses, I want you to catch this this morning. There is not a hint of jadedness, not a hint of deep skepticism. There is no unbelief, no lack of faith. Jesus is saying, oh, no, no, this is going to happen. And so this is what he says in verse 13. Look at your scriptures. He says, you and you. And you, and you, you are the salt of the earth. Now, if you read this in the original language, it's even more shocking. Are we ready? It says, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. Think about how unbelievably crazy this is. There is not one church building at this moment when Jesus is saying it. No one is wearing crosses around their necks. People are dying on crosses. There is not thousands of followers, hundreds of thousands. There are not billions of followers, no study Bibles, no Vatican, no seminaries, no Bible colleges. There is no small groups. There's no Beth Moore. There's nothing. There is nothing at all except a handful of mostly uneducated, poor, half-followers of Jesus in the backwater of the backwater of the backwater of the backwater of the Roman Empire. And Jesus has the tenacity to stand up and says, you... You and you alone are the salt of the earth for everyone. The hundreds of thousands or millions of people, it's only you. You are the only salt among thousands of claims. You're the only salt among every worldview. You're the only salt among all the religious and philosophic ideas. You among hundreds of thousands or millions, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. This is either delusion, lie, manipulation. Maybe Jesus just got caught up in the emotion of the moment and misspoke. Or or there is an unnatural, heaven-given confidence because the one giving this sermon knows that something is coming that cannot be stopped, that the kingdom that he is bringing and has already brought is greater, bigger, stronger than anything that has ever been thought of, imagined, written down, or preached. And unlike every other movement, this thing is going to last and ripple into eternity kingdom come. So Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. Now, why salt? Well, in this culture, salt was used to preserve food. Can you imagine with me this morning? Not a fridge existed in that time. Think about it hard. Not one fridge, not one freezer, not one ice making machine. All the things you take for granted this morning when you woke up did not exist. The only way to deal with decay and decomposition was salt. I don't know if you've ever been by an animal that gets slaughtered. Most, <laughs> most uh, middle-class suburbanites have no clue. They just go to Loblaws and think God made it that way. Sorry, it doesn't happen that way. 
I don't know if you've ever been there. I've been present when a pig has been killed or other things. Anyway, not my favorite experience. But what I'm shocked by is how flies appear so quickly. You know what I'm talking about? doesn't matter where you are, suddenly at that moment when flesh, like immediately swarms of flies. See, the only way to deal with decay and decomposition and flies is to rub food with salt or soak it in salt. Amazingly too, in this time period, salt was a form of currency. Actually, many people were paid in salt. That's where we get our modern phrase, you're not worth your what? Salt. You didn't do a good enough job, so we're not going to pay you. That's where it comes from. But see, even at this moment... Jesus, whether you feel it or not, is already offending you. He's peeling back the veneer of civility and so-called order. Jesus is basically saying that the world in every generation, no matter how much technology we have, no matter how much education or information we have, we are always moving towards decomposition and rotting. We are continually tempted, and our, our very DNA at its core is prideful. We're about self-exaltation and, and self-protection. Every single generation is born spiritually dead, and so we have a grand rotting problem in the human family. This whole notion that we're born good, just watch the news. Think about your thoughts for a week. Think about your family for the last 20 years. Do you really believe that? The answer cannot be yes. Jesus is really saying, as one scholar said, humanity without me is a dead body that's rotting and falling apart. And you, my followers, listen to this, you, my followers, are the salt that must be rubbed into the flesh to halt decomposition. The world is a place where morals are always changing. Morals are low in certain situations. They disappear altogether. But then Jesus comes along and he says, well, you are now part of a kingdom. And when you join this kingdom, I come into you. And actually, here's the point. You, as a normal, broken, everyday follower of Jesus, when you show up, you bring me. And we together begin to slow down the rot. You bring holiness in unholiness. You bring mercy where no one even knows what that is. You begin to demonstrate meekness when everyone says it's okay to destroy people. You bring honesty. You begin to bring integrity. You stand for truth. In your workplace as a Christian, you don't lie. You don't cheat. You don't steal. You work hard because you do do everything for the glory of God. Don't you understand? You love the vulnerable, those in the womb and those at the end of life. You stand for truth. You are love. You are the salt of the earth. See, every historian, even secular historians, will tell you that when Christians have not been politicized, but when Christians have taken the face value of Jesus' words and just done them, every society around them has had dramatic, dramatic change, legally, socially, artistically, spiritually, familially, neighborhoods, art, culture. It all changes when Christians just obey the kingdom they're already part of. You can't help but be salt and light. How many Roman Empire emperors continually were perplexed when Christians would not take care of just their own poor, but their poor? The Roman Empire Empire records multiple instances where Christians were dying in the ditches during natural disasters, and they didn't understand why someone would even do this. Because our kingdom is not natural, and our kingdom is not from here. Salt preserves Salt also is a spice. You ever thought about that? A good amount of salt, not too much, but a good amount of salt on food brings out the natural flavor of the food that you're eating. 
See, that's so profound and so needed. Don't you understand? Jesus is saying that those who do everything for God's glory and not their own self-exaltation, they bring out the good that is left in culture. See, when Christians love Jesus and when Christians follow Christ and when Christians are involved in the word of God, suddenly those who are artists bring life to art again. Those who are culture makers make culture. Those in the legal field begin to reintroduce the culture to justice. Philosophy is reoriented. See, when Christians love Jesus, follow Jesus, and are part of Jesus, we become the spice of life. We become those who take common grace and rip it out of society and show them there still is good that must be loved. Salt also creates thirst. Ever had too much salt? Ever been like a donkey or a, you know, a camel? Like too much salt? Immediately you want to drink. Do you understand the, the profound statement in this metaphor? Jesus is saying that everyday normal Christians who have been poor in spirit, who mourn over sin and begin to see this lifestyle that he is describing through the power of the Holy Spirit begin to form their life. As we begin to reflect beatitudes that do not make sense, people around us will become thirsty around us and they will say, I knew what you were and what you've become. What do you have that I do not? And we will say, I have the king of the kingdom and his name is Jesus. But if salt loses its saltiness, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now here's the point. Don't miss this this morning. This isn't talking about losing salvation. Talk to a scientist. Salt cannot stop being salt. It's a very stable compound. But here is Jesus' point. When salt gets mixed with other things, it loses its power and becomes useless. You cannot use salt to preserve food. You cannot use salt to create thirst. You cannot use salt to, as, as a spice when it gets compromised and mixed with dirt or other things. And so Jesus says, well, you all know. The whole crowd's like, yeah, I know. My kid knocked over the salt, got mixed with dirt. What do you do? You throw it out in the street. Why? That's the ancient garbage dump. When salt gets adulterated with other things, when salt gets compromised with sand or dirt or other things, it cannot stop decay. It cannot be used as a spice. It cannot create thirst. It becomes useless. As one person said, if we're not heating the world up, the world is freezing us out. If salt... It's thrown out. You know what it does, right? We all love up here. Soon the snow is coming, right, everyone? I'm so sorry. The snow is coming. Someone watching in Florida is like, oh, no, it's not. Fine, have a hurricane. Okay, so. (laughs) But as the snow is coming, we know what's about to happen, right? Our roads will be covered with what? Salt. And what happens with salt? Salt kills soil. Salt that's compromised actually not only kills soil, salt kills plants. One of the most profound truths in this passage rarely preached is when salt gets compromised, it ends up doing the opposite of what it's called to do. Christian, you can reverse the kingdom by not living in the kingdom, though you're part of it. Salt. Think about church history. Where are all the churches in North Africa? 
Where are the great churches where Augustine wrote? Where are all the churches that Paul wrote to that we read about? Look at Canada. How many churches a hundred years ago filled are now yoga studios and community playhouses? They're being bought up and snapped up by the wealthy among us and making them the best house and home you could ever have at their mosques, their temples. This is the point. Each generation of followers of Jesus must make the decision, salt or in the garbage dump. There is no in between. Since God has no grandchildren, what is done in each generation will either ripple out or will produce nothing. Jesus is saying, you church, not just C4, every faithful follower of Jesus, you and you alone are the salt of the earth among seven billion souls. You are called to create a thirst in people for me, Jesus says. You stop the tide of darkness by your very holy life that you live. You redeem culture. You show the world what is coming in part. Do not compromise. Do not play with evil. Do not think that your little personal struggle does not have an effect. Do not mix sand and salt. Ask Jesus to make you meek, pure, merciful. Ask him to help you mourn over sin again. Do not forget how poor we all were. You and you alone are the salt of the earth. The question is, do you believe this? And does your life my life, our life, reflect such a high, last-ditch calling. You and you alone, period. There is no one else coming. It's us or no one. Jesus uses a stronger image that is wider, transcultural, definitely goes through all generations. He's actually about to call us the light of the world. But before we are reminded that we are the light of the world, let me remind our congregation this morning, you watching online, that Jesus, Jesus himself called himself the light of the world. In John 8, 12, he said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, we've read this. If you've grown up in church, you may know this passage well, but here's what most of us don't know. We don't know when he said this. Now this happens, and when I describe this to you, I want to describe this so you understand the power of what Jesus has just proclaimed. There was a festival in the Jewish faith. It was a spectacular festival called the Illumination of the Temple. It took place in the temple treasury. And here's how one scholar works it out. He says, look, they used to build four massive golden candelabras. And they had huge torches on the top of them. And it was said that each lamp was as tall as the highest wall in the temple. Now, if you know how big the walls are, you now know what we're talking about. On each one of these lamps held a bowl. And each bowl held 65 liters of oil. There was a ladder on each lamp. And and when the evening came, it's funny how the historian says, one healthy young priest, okay, would carry up the oil, pour it into the bowl, and then would light the protruding wick. Eyewitnesses in multiple generations said that when this was done, the huge flames that leapt from these torches illuminated not only the temple, you ready? All of the city of Jerusalem lit up in the middle of the night. Now here's what's profound. This is celebrating God when he was like the pillar of fire at night and the pillar of cloud during the day, during the Exodus. Now here's what the scholar says. It was in the temple treasury the following morning with the charred torches still in place, that Jesus has the audacity and the gall to walk into the very temple of God. And he proclaims in front of the four charred torches, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He is basically saying, 
I am the pillar of fire. I am the cloud. I am the one who saved you from the Egyptians. I am the same cloud that met the tabernacle. I am the one that came upon Solomon's temple. I am God. See, that's why the religious leaders wanted to murder him, stone him, because he was committing the sin of blasphemy, unless, of course, he's right. It was the great philosopher, atheist turned follower of Jesus, C.S. Lewis, who said rightly, you cannot keep reading Jesus and come to the conclusion he is neutral. He truly has to be a lunatic, a liar, Satan, or God. There is no room when people make statements like this. Can you imagine if I stood up this morning, dear friends, I have an announcement to make, I'm God. You'd be like, hashtag heresy, let's get out, right? Like, really? Jesus proclaims this at the epicenter of the celebration of light. It's what Jesus' best friend John wrote in John 3.19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved the darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. There it is. How we love darkness. Let's just admit it today. We do. We love darkness. Our world is marked by darkness in so many shades. Sometimes our lives, sometimes our culture, sometimes our country, sometimes our family, our thoughts are marked by like light gray. Sometimes it's dark gray, other times it's ink black, 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 but the scriptures are clear. We're sinful. Our lives are marked by spiritual darkness and deadness. As another pointed out, we're like Lady Macbeth as she planned, planned her famed murder. In our thoughts and in our motives, in our actions in varying degrees, this is what we truly say, oh, come thick night. And pale thee in the dunnest smoke of hell, that may keep see knife wound it makes, nor heaven peep through the blanket of night. This is what we are truly like. But we as Christians proclaim something. Heaven showed up anyway. Heaven has come. The kingdom of God is among us. Heaven did not only peep through the blanket of night, it has invaded and ripped open the night. And as the kingdom of God, the reign and rule of God is in you and grows in you, Jesus says, you now begin to become what I am. You are the place where the reign and rule of God is being worked out. You are members of the kingdom come. You are my hands and feet. You and, lo- you and you alone are this because of your proximity and relationship to me. So that's why he says in verse 14, you and you alone are the light of the world. You share me. Dr. Barnhorse, Barnhouse, famous American preacher of a while ago now, started using the Im- illustration here of a moon. He was the master illustrator in his day. He said, oh, never ever confuse the conversation. Uh, We have no light that comes instinctually from us. Oh, no, no. He says, we are like the moon. The moon only reflects the sun and its light. And so the same with us. As we've encountered the light of the world, we become the light of the world because like the moon, we just reflect the one we've encountered. Never make the mistake you think it comes from you. Sometimes one pastor said, in some generations, the church is like a bright harvest moon, big and bold, almost daylight, bringing such dazzling light. Other times, it's sort of covered by clouds, and in other times, we're like a thumbnail moon where hardly anything is there, but we always still are the light. Jesus says, you and you alone are the light of the world. I want you again to think about this, because this is a high calling even on this Thanksgiving weekend. Listen to how Paul, once a murderer of Christians, articulated this in Ephesians 5a. You were once in darkness, 
But now you're, you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists of all goodness and, and righteousness and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Well, let me tell you, C4, we're going to do that all year. We're going to find out what pleases the Lord, because the Sermon on the Mount is what pleases the Lord. But I want you again to see the intensity of Jesus' statements to a Jewish audience. The craziness, the, the, the inappropriateness of these statements, if it's not true. See, Jesus is saying to a Jewish audience, you, you grade two educated fishermen, and you tax collector, you're the light of the world, not the temple anymore. What? Oh, no, you're the light of the world, not the Torah anymore. What? No, you're the light of the world, not the Pharisees. What? No, you're the light of the world, not the nation of Israel. No, no, you. You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on the stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine. Let your light shine before others so they will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Can you imagine a world without electricity? Think about it. Can you imagine it? It's hard, isn't it? The only equivalence we have is if we go up north, right? Like really far north to... Till Algonquin Park or even farther. And suddenly you look up. Anyone have that experience? Raise your hand. Where you've seen the stars for real? Raise your hand. Isn't that amazing? You go, oh, wow, this is so unbelievable. God's like, it's like that all the time. Light pollution. Um, but you're up there in pitch black darkness. And you look up and you go, this is like unbelievable. We also know how dark it is when there's no electricity. Jesus is talking to a world where there is no electricity, zero. And he uses the image of a city on a hill. And he says, when you're walking at night and all the lamps are lit in homes, you can see that hill. Everyone goes, oh yeah, I see that all the time. See, Jesus' point is you cannot be part of the kingdom of God and not be on display. It's impossible or you're not part of the kingdom. I grew up in Ecuador. I was born in the Shua. I grew up in Ecuador. And uh, interestingly, I grew up in a city called Quito. Now, I, I love telling my kids this. I actually grew up in a volcano. They think that's the coolest thing ever. Like, wow. And I'm like, it's not that cool. But anyway, I'll use it while I got it because they watched Dora. Giddy up. Okay, so. Um, but I grew up in a city called Quito. I'm sure there's over a million people. It's 10,000 feet above sea level. To light fire, any fire, you have to use kerosene just to get it going. And it doesn't blow up. There's so little, 40% less oxygen. But 10,000 feet. Now, what's amazing is it is actually on the side of a volcano. And it's built on a ledge. And at night when you're down in the valleys and you look up, if the clouds are not there, you can actually see it shining brilliantly. And Jesus is saying, don't you understand that's you? He says, you know, every night, everyone, when you go home, like you're going to go tonight, they said, yeah, yeah, Jesus. He said, you know, you're going to get your little oil lamps out. Everyone's like, yeah. He said, what do you do? He says, well, we light them, of course, because it's dark, right? No electricity. And he says, uh, would anyone be stupid enough to put a bowl over it? No, that's, why would you? He says, so you think you get to join my kingdom and not shine? No, no, don't you understand that you are called to shine because you've encountered the light of life. You've encountered the way, the truth, and the life. You've done this. And by the way, it's not just for you to sit with me. No, no. You're to do this. And the way you demonstrate life is by good light, is by good works. And when people see genuine good works, they will turn around and praise, not their father, your father in heaven. See, the words and commands of Jesus to be salt and to be light to do good deeds, to be seeds. This is the manifesto. This, this is the foundation. This is the outline of the church. Now, it's interesting. Good deeds here is not the common word in Greek, which just means to do a really good job. It actually is beauty and attractiveness. Can everyone just listen for a moment? 
He says, I want your everyday broken life to be filled with unnatural beauty and attractiveness as you do good works. What are good works? Now, notice, number one, you don't do good works to get in the kingdom. They happen after you join it. The lie of religion is that you do good things to get to know God. Christianity writhes against that idea. We say we'll never be holy enough to meet him. He came for us. That's the whole idea of being poor in spirit. Good works happen as love gifts after we're already in the marriage, not before. So what are good deeds? Well, good deeds, as this says, are everything. It's proclaiming the truth. It's actually being marked by the Beatitudes more and more. It's loving the unlovely. Everything you do in the name of Jesus is a good work. Every time you do this, we stop the rot. Every time you love a neighbor, you stop the rot. Every time you cry out before God for Durham, you stop the rot. Every time you love the unlovely, you stop the rot. Every time you say Jesus is Lord, you stop the rot. Every act done in the name of Jesus, whether financially or person-to-person or relationally or gift-based orientation or proclaiming the gospel every good work stops the decomposition we are the salt and the light because jesus has decided and when it's real people that are not looking or don't want god will turn around and say something is happening there so the question we need to ask even on this beautiful long weekend is this If we've met Jesus as Savior and Lord, if the cry, the growing cry, and I use that word appropriately, the growing cry of this church is that Jesus' kingdom, the Father's kingdom, the Spirit's kingdom would grow more and more unabashed in each person's life and within this community and in this region, here's the question some of you need to ask today. And this is not guilt and this is not, just hear this for what it is. Is there any evidence you're even part of the kingdom? Are you salt and light or are you not? It was R.C. Ryle, one of the famous Anglican bishops in the 19th century who said this, Have you grace? Then it must be seen. Have you the Holy Spirit? Then there must be fruit. Have you any saving religion? Then there must be a difference in your habits, tastes, and the turn of your mind between us who have met him and those who only think of the world. Let me ask the questions I asked last week. Have you ever been poor in spirit? Have you mourned over your sin? Have you, here's the starting point. Have you ever said to Jesus, I confess who you really are? The way you enter the kingdom of heaven is saying, I now confess. Not intellectually, fully. I confess who Jesus is. And then you admit your poverty before God your sinfulness, how you've lived your life thinking you could truly be the master of your destiny, that you trusted in religion or you trusted in power or sex or money or education or you fill in the blank or cultural background. No, no, Christianity says that doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter what gender you are. We all come equally before God and we enter by kneeling and saying, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And we mourn over our sin and what does God promise? He will comfort us. Have you called upon Jesus? Maybe some of you are sitting here today and you're like, I am not salt and I am not light. But as you are speaking, though you're a human being, something is going on. I have no understanding. I feel drawn. If this is you, I want you to take a moment. We're just going to stop before I speak to the Christian community. You in, In venue B, this is for you. You online, I don't care if you're in a go train or a plane. Hear this. This is a moment. If you have never entered the kingdom And you want to move from being darkness 
and tasteless spiritually to being salt and light. This is the ordained moment that God has decided to come meet you now. God is love. His love endures forever. He is good and kind. And there, I've preached this so many times. There are so many of us sitting in this room that would tell you we are not Christians because we're good or moral. We're all Christians because we acknowledged our need and we have found a love that does not make sense. So if that's you, pray this prayer right now. Church, pray that people would say yes to this. This is a holy moment. Say this, I'm not salt and I'm not light. Actually, I'm full of darkness. Dear Lord Jesus, I now want to say to you, I'm a sinner. And I'm asking for your forgiveness right now. Make me salt and make me light. I don't get all of this yet, but I know for some reason you died for my sins and you physically rose from the dead. So I turn from running my own life and I now ask you to run it and to be the king of my life. I ask for the kingdom to come into me. I invite you to come into my heart and life. I trust you now. I follow you as my Lord and Savior in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that right after this service, there will be prayer people here, prayer people in venue B, and you can connect with us, social media online. Tell us, because we want to do this. And I just want to say to the church, by the way, people are meeting Jesus. Three people this week publicly met Christ in our church. I just want to say that, okay? Here's what I want to say as we prepare for communion, but I want everyone not to move yet because we need to hear this. Church, we're called to be different. There, there has to be a difference between us that are part of the kingdom and those who are not. The assumption is you're going to be different. If there is no difference, you can't be what we're called to be. It's what John Stott said, this is truly the call for a Christian counterculture. But the Christian counterculture is not politically motivated. It's defined by the Sermon on the Mount. Let me show you how radical what Jesus is telling us to do, not just inviting us. It was Larry Richards who just did this graph, and let me share it here and everywhere else. Ready? He said, here's Jesus' values. He says, be poor in spirit. Our culture says be self-confident, competent, self-reliant. You don't need anybody. Jesus says mourn. Our culture says pleasure-seeking, hedonism. Let's, all, let's focus our lives on everything that is beautiful in our cultural standards. Jesus says be meek. Our culture says be proud, powerful, important, step on anybody. Our movement says hunger and thirst for righteousness. Our culture says just be satisfied, be well-adjusted, be practical. In other words, don't get too emotional about this religious stuff. A little bit's okay, but don't hunger and thirst. That's a little crazy. You know, just be practical. Our culture, their culture. Merciful, their culture. Self-righteous, able to take care of myself, step on anybody. Pure in heart. No, no, pure in heart. Let's not use words like sin. Don't you understand we're beyond that? Let's be adult. Let's be sophisticated. Let's be broad-minded. Everyone's right, sort of. Let's all hug in chapters. Peacemakers. Be competitive. Be aggressive. Destroy anybody. Persecuted. No, no. Don't rock the boat. Be adaptable. Be popular. Don't declare things. Do you see? With each beatitude, the gap gets wider and wider. Some of you are sitting here as I'm preaching last week and this week, and you are terrified. You're saying, I will never be like that as a Christian. It is impossible. So I should just give up. Stop and hear me at this moment. It is impossible. You will never be meek, nor will I, or a peacemaker. It is not natural to forgive people. It is not natural to be pure in heart. But this is not a natural movement. 
I'm not asking you as a pastor to pull up your bootstraps and get it on. No, I'm reminding you that Jesus Christ had the Spirit of God on him, and Jesus Christ has sent his Spirit into you, the same Spirit that was involved in creation, the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, the same Spirit that gave Jesus the power to do what he wanted, and together in the Trinity. And I'm reminding you, you need to approach God and say, by your Spirit, make me like this. By your Spirit, make me like this. If you try doing the Sermon on the Mount on your own power, leave now. But if you start your day by saying, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me, he will. Don't run from our calling. Embrace it in a power that's not your own. Last thing to say, and then we'll do communion, is this. We're called to do words and deeds in Jesus' name. All we're called to do, we are asking Jesus to do this. And I want this sermon to sit for a while. Not a big emotional moment, just sit for a while. We are saying, Jesus, you make me meek. Jesus, you make me merciful, make me a peacemaker, make me pure, make me ready to stand when I have to. And as my life gets changed over time, also during that change, I will tell the good news of Jesus. Most of what we're talking about will not happen in a sermon, in a church, on a short-term missions trip, or during during devotions or connect group. Most of what Jesus is talking about is going to happen in the ordinary, everyday life, during a business transaction, over coffee, picking up your kids after school, having wings and beer. It is there and there alone that the kingdom is going to shine brightest. It's where we, in that place where our lives are being marked by Christ, and we tell the truth that we begin to stand in the great tradition of the church, and we say things like Paul did, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then the non-Jew. Or we will say to our culture, though it's deeply offensive, what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through me, period. It's what Peter preached in Acts 4.12. Salvation is found no, in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given to humanity by which we must be saved. Let me give you these words now as the band comes up here and in the other venue. Here it is. John Stott brilliantly wrote, Jesus did not say that you are the honey of the world. Jesus said you are the salt of the world. Salt bites. And the unadulterated message of judgment and grace has always been a biting thing. We are called as a church, not to fortress ourselves, we are called as a church to live our Christian life among our friends, strangers, enemies, and co-workers. We are called to be salt and light, and I remind you, you are the only line of defense according to Scripture. We are it, period. Us and the Lord, salt and light. We are called to ask God to make our character so distinct that it shines shockingly, and we are also called to proclaim the gospel of Jesus unashamedly. But you see that your life and the message have to be counterbalanced because if the message is not peppered with an unbelievable character, you will come across arrogant. But if it is peppered by meekness and love, then you will say, this is true. My life is evidence of it. My message is true. Won't you come meet the king of the kingdom I've met? Lord Jesus Christ, This is our request on this church. Nothing less than the kingdom of God. Nothing less. We do not want C4 to be exalted. Not one leader in this church. We do not want one person in this church to touch the glory of God. We are requesting continually, wrestling continually, begging continually that you would be unrelenting 
and that you would transform Christians who have been Christians for 50 years and 10 years and 5 years and 2 years and begin to make us more and more like the Sermon on the Mount. Give us unbelievable favor and also help us to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to Durham in the world. Holy Spirit, bring Jesus and Jesus, bring God the Father's will among us. We ask this all together and loudly say, Amen. Amen. We're going to respond now in communion. And it's going to be passed this morning. And simply, communion is when Jesus got his followers together just before he was killed. And he took bread and broke it and says, I'm going to do this thing. My body's going to be broken. He took a cup during the Passover and took some wine and said, this is a symbol of my body and my blood being spilled for you. And he reminded us that he was dying in our place. A new covenant, a new agreement. So communion is the gathering Christians celebrating the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. It is the celebration of forgiveness. It is the celebration that one day we will meet him face to face. And we won't take this anymore because we'll be eating with him. It's the celebration of new starts. It is the reminder of his kingdom. But the scripture is clear. If you're not a Christian, don't take this. Because you've not embraced the one that this represents. But we always say... Communion's a great place to say yes to him. Also, this is a time where some of us need to admit that we are in rebellion against God, not struggling, rebellion. Don't take this because you're actually rebelling against the one who is your Lord. But this would be a great time to repent. But for you who are doing great and terrible and struggling and wondering, you are welcome to this moment because here we say, Lord, I accept who you are and ask for your kingdom. So Lord Jesus, as these elements are passed, we take them when prompted. We pray, Lord, in this auditorium and venue B, also right across so many places. Lord, meet with your people as we celebrate the light of the world.